and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. I'm Rich Caparola. Concerts this week, Thursday, April 13th through Saturday the 15th, feature guest conductor Thomas Otis and violin soloist Hilary Hahn. The program opens with Sibelius's Night Ride and Sunrise and closes with a suite from Richard Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier. In between, two performances by Hilary Hahn, including two serenades, music by Enyohane Rautavara with posthumous orchestrations by Kalevi Aho and the Pablo de Sarasate Fantasy on Bizet's Carmen. And here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Rautavara's two serenades, the music lasting about 14 minutes. A special aura often surrounds a composer's last works. They sometimes brilliantly crown a long and important career. Sometimes they hint at new directions that the composer will not live to fully explore. But final works discovered after a composer's death, like these two or deux serenades by Anurani Rautavara, are particularly precious, unexpected gifts that remind us of what we have lost. When they are performed by the artists the composer had in mind as he wrote them, as these serenades are this week, they have a special poignancy. I know Johanny Rautavara was the first Finnish composer to command world attention after Sibelius early in the 20th century. For many years, he was a low-profile figure whose name was barely known outside his native land. Rautavara was born into a musical family. His father was an opera singer and cantor. He studied musicology at the University of Helsinki and composition at the Sibelius Academy. It was the 90-year-old Sibelius, in fact, who selected him for a Kusevitsky Foundation grant to study in the United States. In 1955, Rautavara came to this country and worked with Vincent Persichetti at the Juilliard School and with Roger Sessions and Aaron Copeland at the Tanglewood Music Center. After he returned to Finland, Rautavara taught at the Sibelius Academy. Although Rautavara's music was regularly performed at home and had won several awards, his popularity was largely limited to Finland until the 1990s, when he became a kind of cult figure, both throughout Europe and the United States. Although his works aren't overtly religious, their spiritual and contemplative nature conveyed in highly tonal music of simplicity and atmospheric beauty began to attract a wide following, particularly from listeners drawn to the suddenly fashionable music of such composers as Arvo Pert and Henrik Goretzky. Rautavara also has unwittingly cashed in on a rising fascination with angels, which he anticipated by more than a decade. His own interest in the dark and powerful force of angels was inspired by a childhood dream and by a cloud formation in the shape of an angel that he saw many years later from an airplane window. This obsession they repeat in my mind like a mantra that radiates musical energy, he says, has influenced much of his output, beginning with Angels and Visitations in 1978. The last manifestation was his seventh symphony, subtitled Angel of Light, composed in 1994. Rautavara's music has evolved over his long career from neoclassicism through serialism to his own idiosyncratic language. He has fashioned something distinctive and personal of the Sibelius legacy he inherited, but called himself a romantic composer. A romantic has no coordinates. In time, he is in yesterday or tomorrow, but never in today. 
When Rautavara died in 2016, he left a large body of work, eight symphonies, nine operas, and a dozen concertos, along with many chamber, choral, and orchestral scores. But there was one additional work, a diptych for violin and orchestra that was left incomplete. The idea for the piece was born when Hilary Hahn played Raúl Tavares sole violin concerto in Paris in 2014 with Miko Franck conducting the Philharmonic Orchestra of Radio France. Hahn had never met Raúl Tavares, but she asked Franck, who was a friend of the composer, if he thought Raúl Tavares would consider writing a second concerto. Hahn had already commissioned Rautavara to compose a short piece for violin and piano as part of her Encores project. His Whispering is one of the 27 works included on her 2012 recording of these miniatures. This time Rautavara demurred, but he told Frank that he could perhaps write a set of serenades, a project that seemed uncertain from the start because of his declining health. Ainuhani's serious illness in 2004 revolutionized his entire life, his widow, Sinika, later recalled. Composing gave him the motivation to maintain the flame of life. When Rautavara died in July 2016 at 87, there was no word about what, if anything, had become of the new score for Han to play. Frank was then stunned when Sinika Rautavara showed him a manuscript she found in her husband's studio of a work for violin and orchestra that appeared to be all but complete. Frank knew at once that this was the work Rautavara had said he would write instead of a full concerto. The title, uncharacteristically, was in French, the language of Frank's orchestra. There were two serenades. Rautavara had finished the first down to the last details of orchestration. The second was complete in short-score manuscript, but the orchestration was only partially done. Rautavara's former student, the Finnish composer Kalavi Aho, was asked to complete the scores, which involved adding dynamic markings throughout and finalizing the orchestration of the second piece. The first serenade is elegiac and haunting, entitled Serenade pour mon amour, Serenade for my love. It was inspired by Stefan George's poem Es lacht im dem steigenden Jahr dir, It laughs in the rising year to you. The second serenade is his last work. Rautavara entitled it Serenade pour la vie, Serenade for life. As Sinica says, Serenade pour la vie begins hopefully and brightly, but soon turns to remember the past and the life lived. The feeling remains that life was too short after all. The premiere was given in February 2019 with Franck conducting and Hahn playing the work she had set in motion some five years earlier. After the final note, she recalls, Miko raised the score toward the heavens, acknowledging the composer's presence in spirit. Program notes by Philip Huscher on the two serenades de serenade by Anuhani Rautavara. And now on to Richard Strauss's suite from Der Rosenkavalier. The performance time, around 24 minutes. Zalome made Richard Strauss the most famous composer alive. It also made him rich. Shortly after the Dresden premiere in 1905, Strauss built himself a villa in the foothills of the Bavarian Alps, which he paid for with royalty checks. He moved in at the beginning of June 1908 
and the first work he completed there at a large oak desk positioned for a postcard view of the mountains was Electra, based on an adaptation of Sophocles' play by Hugo von Hofmannsthal. But it was Strauss's next opera, Der Rosenkavalier, with an original libretto by Hofmannsthal, which made the two of them the most celebrated composer-poet team since Mozart and da Ponte. And it brought Strauss his greatest popular success. To accommodate the public, special Rosenkavalier trains ran from Berlin to Dresden following its premiere there in January 1911. Fifty performances were given in Dresden within the year. Later, Rosenkavalier brands of champagne and cigarettes were sold. In 1926, a silent film was made. The opera was so popular that even without singing, it had an audience. We were born for one another and are certain to do fine things together, Strauss wrote to Hofmannsthal before they had even settled on the 18th century Viennese tale that became their comedy for music, Der Rosenkavalier. These two made an unlikely pair. A poet of exquisite and refined taste, Hofmannsthal tended to be withdrawn and aloof. He lived outside Vienna in a small Rococo castle, which he refused to equip with modern bathrooms or central heating. Strauss was a showman, and a good businessman. He could be crass, but he was eminently practical, and he possessed a shrewd sense of theater, what would play and what wouldn't. They were, in other words, a perfect match. Their professional relationship lasted 23 years and produced six operas. They did nearly all their communicating by mail, partly because Hoffmannsthal disliked Strauss's wife, whom he thought loud and pushy, and even at the end of two decades, they still were not on a first-name basis. Strauss's letters are usually addressed to Lieber Freund, Hoffmannsals to Lieber Dr. Strauss. After the premiere of Elektra, with its searing dissonances, powerhouse orchestra, and Wagnerian voices, Strauss felt the need for a change of pace, and he was overheard saying, Now I shall write a Mozart opera. Hoffmannsthal knew precisely what Strauss wanted, and the new libretto he mailed in installments practically set itself to music, as the composer later commented. Nevertheless, it took Strauss a year and a half to complete the score. It was a labor of love, and Strauss worked with such enthusiasm that he even set one of Hoffmannsthal's stage directions to music by mistake. The Rosenkavalier is one of opera's landmarks, particularly in its balance of music and words, and even Hoffmannsthal, always a tough critic, was nearly brought to tears by its whole beauty, by a complete unity, by absolute harmony. For this Mozart opera, Strauss assumed a new musical personality, one stepped in tradition rather than poised on the brink of the avant-garde, De Rosenkavalier was later criticized as a signal retrenchment in the course of 20th century music, the first step in Strauss's abrupt turning away from the music of his day in favor of old-world artistic sensibilities. But as a musical response to a period comedy and as a way of imbuing the music of the past with all the modern conveniences, it's an ingenious, completely successful, and ultimately influential work of art.
Der Rosenkavalier abounds in orchestral virtuosity, and symphony orchestras have long enjoyed playing selections from the opera, reminding us that before Strauss became the most popular opera composer of his day, he produced an astonishing decade-long series of hit tone poems, beginning with Don Juan. Of all the orchestral condensations of Der Rosenkavalier, only one, the delightful first waltz sequence, was actually made by Strauss himself. But the suite performed this week, apparently put together by the conductor Artur Rodzinski, is the most satisfying as a bird's-eye view of the whole score. Rodzinski led the premiere of the suite in New York in 1944, more than three decades after the opera was first staged and only five years before Strauss's death. And Rodzinski conducted the first Chicago Symphony performance in 1947 during his first season here as the orchestra's music director. The action in Der Rosenkavalier revolves around the Marshallin, who has taken the 17-year-old Count Octavian as her lover, and the bumbling, lecherous Baron Ox auf Lechenau, who lacks both money and social graces, and who has arranged to marry Sophie von Faninal, who has both in spades. When Octavian is selected to present Sophie with a silver rose, an elaborate engagement custom devised by Hofmannsthal, the two fall in love. In the end, inevitably, Octavian leaves the Marshall Inn for the pretty young Sophie, and Ox is revealed as the silly old fool he is. The suite begins where the opera starts, famously with the bold, erotic horn music that is Der Rosenkavalier's calling card and always a welcome sound to opera lovers. The following music introduces first the marshalling, swooning over her young lover Octavian, and then, in the rapturous presentation of the rose scene, Sophie. We next meet Baron Ox, promising a chambermaid against all evidence that, with me, no night is too long in the most famous of the opera's waltzes. Despite his surname, it wasn't Strauss who had the idea of putting waltzes in Der Rosenkavalier, an anachronistic touch that quickly became the opera's signature. Try and think of an old-fashioned Viennese waltz, Hoffmannsthal wrote as he was preparing their libretto, sweet and saucy, which should pervade the whole of the last act. The suite now shifts to the celebrated trio, actually three separate simultaneous monologues for the Marshallin, Octavian, and Sophie, reflecting on love from their different points of view, followed by the final duet of Octavian and Sophie as they go off together. This is one of opera's most touching and glorious scenes, and for sheer melodic splendor and high-calorie harmonic richness, it's unsurpassed in Strauss's output. In the now-distant days of LPs, a New Yorker cartoon showed a man on his deathbed asking to hear side eight of Der Rosenkavalier one last time. Unlike the opera, the suite ends with yet another waltz. Although his career lasted another 30-plus years, Strauss never surpassed the popular success of Der Rosenkavalier. During World War II, when American soldiers showed up at the door of his Bavarian villa, he introduced himself simply by saying, I am Richard Strauss, the composer of Der Rosenkavalier and Zolome. In June 1949, to celebrate his 85th birthday, Strauss went to Munich, where he attended rehearsals of Der Rosenkavalier, conducted by a young then Georg Schulte. 
The composer picked up the baton and led the very end of Act Two. He died that September. The music performed at his memorial service under Schulte's baton was the great trio from Der Rosenkappler. Program notes by Philip Huscher on the suite from Richard Strauss's Der Rosenkappler. I'm Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.